I'm Brian Foster, and this is the Grindhouse Institute. On each episode of this podcast, Jeremy Floyd and I program a triple feature movie night. Each of the movies share common themes, and we discuss them here. We're happy you could join us for today's block we call The Road to James Bond. Bond first appeared in literature and on screens in the early 1950s, but he didn't become the character we all think of until the 60s. Films like Dr. No, From Russia with Love, and Goldfinger established this indelible image of James Bond. This version of Bond was brought to life by Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman with their production company Eon Productions. Eon has made 26 Bond films to date, including one slated to come out this year. Today's show focuses on films that helped influence Broccoli and Saltzman's conception of Bond and establish the template for the franchise. In 1941, Rick's Cafe, a swanky nightclub run by American expat Rick Blaine, is the last stop for refugees fleeing the Nazis. When one of those refugees turns out to be Rick's former lover, he has to decide whether to stick his neck out for her and her husband. Humphrey Bogart looked sharp in his Bondian white dinner jacket and rose lapel in 1942's Casablanca. At the height of World War II, a group of British Royal Marines embark on a dangerous espionage mission. Using two-man canoes and the cover of night, they have to sneak in behind enemy lines to sabotage German ships without being seen. Trevor Howard and Jose Ferrar star in The Cockleshell Heroes from 1955. After being mistaken for a secret agent, Roger Thornhill is sent on a cross-country adventure to save his own life. Along the way, he's framed for murder, chased by a crop-dusting biplane, falls in love with a beautiful, mysterious woman, and is chased across the face of Mount Rushmore. Cary Grant is the Bond-esque mistaken super-spy in 1959's North by Northwest. Thank you for listening to the Grindhouse Institute. Please enjoy. There is a man arrived in Casablanca on his way to America. He will offer a fortune to anyone who will furnish him with an exit visa. Well, what's his name? Victor Laszlo. Victor Laszlo? Rick, that is the first time I've ever seen you so impressed. Well, he succeeded in impressing half the world. It's my duty to see that he doesn't impress the other half. Rick, Laszlo must never reach America. He stays in Casablanca. It seems German ships are running in and out of Bordeaux getting past our blockade and bringing vital raw materials to the German war machine. No one else seems to be able to do anything about it at the moment, so our job is to get all the way up there and try to blow up those ships in the docks. How do you propose to get there? By canoes. My secretary is a great admirer of your methods, Mr. Kaplan. Elusiveness, however misguided. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Did you call me Kaplan? I know you're a man of many names, but I'm perfectly willing to accept your current choice. Current choice? My name is Thornhill. Roger Thornhill. There's never been anything else. Of course. So obviously, your friends picked up the wrong package when they bundled me out here in the car. All right, welcome back to the Grindhouse Institute. I'm Brian Foster, and with me, as always, is Jeremy Floyd. Hello, and how are you? Hey, how's it going? Oh, man, I was waiting for a Casablanca line. Man. <laughs> I wish I had one for you. Not prepared for that one. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Today we have a very special show yet again uh, with a very special guest. Uh, Jeremy, if you don't mind, I'll take the, the intro on this one. Yeah, um, go for it. Go considering for it. this is the first time you've ever met this person. Yeah. Um, today we have uh, the multi-hyphenate, if you will, producer, director, editor, uh, very much a writer as well. 
Um, and he's even done some really cool uh, special makeup effects in some um, horror movies you might have seen. Um, yeah, very cool. Uh, and most importantly, one of my favorite instructors and mentors uh, from school, uh, Bruce Civilly. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Somebody's going to fill in that yeah, one. Yeah, All right. Yeah. I think I just lost my co-host in position. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you'll always have Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this guy. Not a roll. Uh, today's show um, is going to be looking at um, what what has been called the road to 007, if you will. Um, we're going to be looking at three films. Uh, Bruce, would you mind uh, introducing the films? Sure. Uh, the three films we're looking at, first one is from 1941, Casablanca, which is uh, the movie that made a romantic star out of Humphrey Bogart, who'd been playing gangsters up to that. Uh, then we'll go to uh, Cockershell Heroes from 1955, a Warwick production. We're going to talk about what Warwick means and why that's significant. And then uh, North by Northwest, 1959, a Hitchcock film that kind of set the style for what would later be the James Bond series. And we might get into that a bit with Dr. No. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Um, yeah, this was exciting. Uh, yet again, this uh, film buff that's a uh, host of this show um, has never seen any of these movies. I think Cockleshell Heroes I can get a pass on because I don't think many, many people have seen think, that one. Yeah. It, it has been years since I saw that one. <laughs> right. Casablanca and North by Northwest I had absolutely no excuse for, um, but seeing these for the first time, um, first of all, Casablanca, nowhere near what I thought it was going to be, and <laughs> such an incredibly good movie. Um, and yeah. North by Northwest um, is might be my new favorite Hitchcock. Um, I think I thought it was just incredibly fun. The reason I chose these films is I was thinking about movies that have elements that you see popping up later in the James Bond films. So that, you know, Bond didn't just come fully formed out of nowhere. He, there's sort of the roots to Bond in these earlier films mm-hmm. in various ways. That's interesting because like, I had gone back and sort of read all the Bond books, uh, you know, a, a couple years ago. And what's in the books and then what the movies became are, are two totally separate things. And I, I think this is a really interesting uh, portfolio of how the, the Bond films got made um, and, and, you know, just how different they are from the books. Uh, because, you know, again, the, there's, there's sort of like the way that, that some of these archetypes that we're about to look at here get, get played out over and over again in you know, the Bond movies. Which, which is an interesting like contrast from what I was kind of expecting when we first were talking about like the origins of Bond. Uh, yeah, well, the books are a different animal, and those sort of yeah. have their own origin stories going back to uh, the Sapper stories, uh, Fu Manchu books, um, mm-hmm. all, all these sort of British detective things from the 20s and 30s. Uh, Bulldog Drummond, you know, is another yeah. inspiration, I think, to Fleming. But, you know, Fleming had a brother, Peter, who was writing travel books, and and was well, very highly regarded in literary circles. And I think Fleming uh, resented that a little bit. So, you know, <laughs> so he started writing his own book series. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't get the critical accolades that his brother did, but he made a lot more money. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> certainly uh, more uh, widely remembered. But yeah. precisely because of, uh, of, of, of Broccoli and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and all, the, all the Eon movies. Right. Yeah, I, I guess what this is like more accurately is like, you know, the origins of sort of the Eon right. uh, Bond, mm-hmm. you know, not not so much just the character in general. Eon being the production company, correct? Yeah, it's Eon Productions. And, uh, you know, there are some books that say that Eon stands for everything or nothing, that when uh, 
uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman joined up to make these movies. They started Eon Productions, and it was everything or nothing for them. <laughs> but that's not really what it is. Uh, all law firms have what they call shell companies, mm-hmm. which are companies that are already set up. They just don't have any officers. They don't really have anything they're doing or any, you know, they're just a shell, just waiting for someone to come in and take it off the shelf and make a company out of it. And uh, when they went to their attorneys and said, we want to start a film company, they had a shell company called Eon. So it has nothing to do with meaning everything <laughs> nothing. It just happened to mean like a span of years, you know, mm-hmm. an appropriate title, I guess, considering how long the movie series has lasted. Yeah. <laughs> what are we on now? Yeah. The 20th Bond film? Oh, beyond that, it's 25 or 26. I forget which one it's going to be. Oh, I, I've lost oh. count, which is saying something. Yeah, I think, you know, from the very beginning of this film, you know, you've got uh, uh, the exotic women, uh, you know, we're in, we're in a strange foreign exotic locale at the beginning. And, yeah. um, and uh, eventually we're introduced to the character of Rick Blaine, which is the Humphrey Bogart character. And the way he's introduced, you know, we don't see his face for a while. We see his hands, we see him signing the chit, and finally, as he's lighting a cigarette, the camera goes up and we see his face. Right. Blaine, Rick Blaine. Yeah. <laughs> Very similar to how Sean Connery's introduced in Doctor No, you know. Yeah, exactly. Wow, and then call. just in terms of um, you know, the way Humphrey Bogart and all the, the scenes that take take place in Rick's cafe, he's in the white dinner jacket with the bow tie, he looks very Bondian. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really st- stood out to me after some years of not seeing Casablanca and seeing it again, is how Rick is a character who aside from his emotional involvement with Elsa, is totally in control of himself and self-assured and cocky as hell. Mm-hmm. You know, so even when the Nazis are coming in and all this, he's, he's trading barbs with them, you know. he's Yeah, but I, un- unlike maybe the, the hero we'll get to in North by Northwest, like he still has a bit of vulnerability to him. And, you know, also unlike the, the movie Bond, uh, he, he doesn't sort of end up with a girl, right? And it's like... Yeah. You know, and, and I guess also mostly book bond as well. I mean, uh, I guess Casino Royale in the book, he doesn't end up with her. Uh, Moonraker as well. In, in that sense, uh, you know, as a prototype, it, it's still sort of being developed uh, with, with the Rick character. Well, and I think that, again, one of the things Rick and Bond have in common is, um, and I've got to go back a little bit here, when Casablanca was made, it was after we'd been in World War II for about a year. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the movie is set just right before Pearl Harbor. Right. Okay. Uh, and before Pearl Harbor, the attitude of most Americans was that's their war. It's not ours. We don't need to get involved. Mm-hmm. You know, we just want to worry about ourselves and not the rest of the world. Then Pearl Harbor happens and suddenly people realize we have to be responsible and, and participate in what's going on. And the Rick character in Casablanca is the absolute personification of that. <laughs> right at the beginning of that movie, he's like, I stick my neck out for nobody, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then Ilsa comes back into his life, and he kind of comes back to life and realizes by the end that he's got to, uh, you know, get involved with this war and help win it. So in a way, uh, he's like Bond in that regard in that he puts the mission before his personal attachments to the women in his life. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but, but also like, you know, his uh, sort of, you know, perfectly neutral attitude or whatever uh, Claude Rains called it, you know, all that's a facade. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely, um, 
uh, you know, he he was fighting with the you know Lincoln Brigade or whatever, or at least you know helping to fund right. the Lincoln Brigade when the mm-hmm. when the during the Spanish Civil War, you know the, the, the Ethiopian thing too. Uh, I mean, he um, knows perhaps like most Americans in uh, whenever this is supposed to be said, 1940 ish, uh, that uh, it's uh, not something you talk about in terms of wanting to get involved because uh, that'll get you labeled as a commie. But uh, you know, it is something that he believes in, obviously, and and uh, you know, but he just he won't show it to anybody. Yeah, I think at the beginning beginning of the film, he's really a broken man because of the way he'd been abandoned by Ilsa in Paris, you know. Yeah. So basically he ends up hiding out there in Casablanca running this cafe with Sam, who went with him. Uh, and, um, you know, he's he's just a beat down character and someone who I think has kind of lost his desire to go on, lost his zest for life. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Yeah, he has to kind of exercise it a, a little bit. Yeah, like the, uh, <laughs> the those demons out. But you know, it, it's also it's tough because it's like you know he's he himself is is very much an unreliable narrator through a lot of it. You know, he he says one thing and does another. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, constantly giving people the cold shoulder, but also helping the people out. Right, like when at the very very beginning, the uh, I can't remember her name. The the woman is at the the bar stool, the sort of French woman. Um, and, uh, you know, talking to the bartender and, you know, she's getting too tipsy and he, he makes sure that she gets home safe type of thing. Uh, you know, not to mention the, the woman who uh, was, you know, they didn't come out and say it, but essentially uh, going to have to sleep with Claude Rains to get an exit visa for her and her husband. Right. Uh, and, and he helps helps her out. It was it was pretty clear that that's what they were getting at. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was just <laughs> enough to sort of dodge the, uh, yeah. the, 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 the haze code or whatever. But like, but, you know, clearly that that's what, where where this thing was going. And, and mm-hmm. you know, and they keep hinting at that. That's how, uh, you know, Claude Rains uh, spends his days, uh, <laughs> you know, tra- trading on all these desperate people in, in uh, Casablanca. The, the, what, what you're saying, though, is that these people are trying to leave the country through um, are from Casablanca. There are travel papers that need to be signed or carried with them wherever they go. And that this seems like a very valuable piece of paper or a very valuable document for these folks, um, especially the ones that <laughs> right. are trying their hardest to work with some of these shady folks that are there to, to get them out of the country, um, as well as those that are trying to keep them in the country. <laughs> right, exactly. And, yeah, and that's, that's the sort of MacGuffin that... Uh, yeah, I was just about to say, like, it's such a Hitchcockian, yeah. you know, device. Yeah. Yeah, the engine of the plot, there, yeah. the, the letters of transit, yeah. Yeah, because there were, like, two different ways to get out of the country, and one of them was these letters of transit, and the other one was sort of an exit visa, and, like, right. it was just... But, you know, you you kind of know that, that there's uh, some documents out there, but uh, sort of the, the details are a little fuzzy in your mind, I think, while you're while you're watching it. And I think uh, another sort of Bondian element I see in this is um, uh, Colonel Strasser, played by Conrad Veidt, mm. who could almost be a Bond villain, you know, the sort of yeah. European villain with class. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he sits there and explains his master plan to you, Mr. Bond, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> And, you know, in Conrad Veidt, you know, he'd been in film since the silent days. He's the uh, somnambulist yeah. in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know. Yeah, he's the man who smiles. Exactly, man who or, laughs, uh, yeah. Man, man who laughs, excuse me, yeah, yeah. And was on the short list to play Dracula until they got Bela Lugosi. So. Right. But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, his performance as uh, Colonel Strasser is, is um, I wouldn't say chilling, 
but he he does seem like someone you don't want to mess with he's like a scorpion you kind of you know just waiting yeah to exactly but man i just as a, a very bizarre uh aside how strange was it that old conrad veidt looked like uh you know young martin landau in uh, sort of north by northwest like yeah they kind of had a really interesting like uh you know, I don't know. It, you know, you're like, oh, if, you, if you're like, oh, that's his cousin or whatever, you, you'd believe it. Or, you know, it's like, that's nephew. <laughs> Karloff, sidekick. <laughs> exactly. I will say, too, that, you know, in the same way that in Dr. No, you get the James Bond theme played more times than in any other uh -huh. Bond film, I think. Uh, you know, you get a similar thing in Casablanca, where you get, as time goes by, played repeatedly. Played them. Play as time goes by. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh um, is just yeah, a what, what, sigh. What's interesting, like, you know, just, you know, while we're on the topic of sort of casting, like, uh, at, at one point I had kind of uh, uh, thought of doing Casablanca, you know, Maltese Falcon, and uh, Notorious as a block. Which, you know, all, all just uh, amazing movies. Really the only, like, you know, like, strong connection was that, like, it sort of, like, ports one cast over from another one and then, you know, ports it onto a third one. Um, but, man, how uh, interesting was it to, to sort of look at these movies in, in this uh, format? You know, like, in, in terms of, like, you know, uh, how you know, the, the troubles of uh, three people uh, not amounting to a hill of beans uh, relates to uh, to James Bond. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing about Casablanca. I, I think it has more quotable lines than any other film ever made, <laughs> including Let's Round Up the Usual Suspects, which is right, where the movie right. The Usual Suspects gets its title, you know. But, and also, you know, talking about cast, you got Peter Lorre, who was the first James Bond villain. Oh, in uh, in the in the uh, TV version of Casino Royale, the Casino TV Royale? version of Casino Royale, oh, okay. he plays with a sheep. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, he didn't didn't have as big of a role in this one as he's had in in, in other films. He 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 gets uh, wiped out of the story pretty quick. Pretty quick, yeah. But but while he's on screen, he absolutely commands it. Bones. You know, Rick, yeah, Rick, hide me, hide me. <laughs> and and how, and you know, speaking of uh, the uh, the pairing of. Um, of Humphrey Bogart and uh, and uh, Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre. Uh, how great was Sidney Greenstreet in this? And and how memorable it's like. Second only to uh, I love to talk to a man who likes to talk to a man who likes to talk. <laughs> yeah, I like how he's just always got his little fly spotter. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be sure to pay that to myself. <laughs> I mean, and, and Sydney Greenstreet, like you know, maybe it's like kind of a kind of a, a Blofeld uh, or, or you know, one of those guys, maybe Goldfinger, yeah, uh, type, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of a prototype for that. All he needs is a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How's business at the Blue Parrot? Fine, but I'd like to buy your cafe. It's not for sale. Haven't heard my offer. It's not for sale at any price. All right. So the reason I chose Cockleshell Heroes is because it's a Warwick film. And Warwick is a company that was started by Cubby Broccoli and a fellow named um, Irving Allen. Uh, so they were producing partners in, in Warwick. And it was basically set up because in the 1950s, uh, the UK was trying to uh, attract a lot more film production to England. 
So they started this kind of rebate program called the ED plan, where they had funds set aside that if you came to the UK and made a movie using a predominantly British crew and British cast, you could get access to ED funds as to help pay for your budget. So Broccoli and Irving decided they would take advantage of this and started Warwick Pictures, which got the name Warwick because they came up with the idea while they were sitting in the Warwick Hotel in oh. New York. <laughs> but they're basically the two Americans producing these films. Uh, and the first few they made starred Alan Ladd. So it's these American producers, okay. American Alan Ladd, making movies in England. Uh, they also brought with them a screenwriter named Richard Maybaum, who wrote most of their films. The first one they did was called The Red Beret, 1953. Um, which was also known as Paratrooper at, uh, in the U.S., I think. Um, but it's, you know, World War II drama. They, they then went on to make all these other films that are usually set in exotic locations, uh, you know, other places within the British realm. Uh, they did a few films in Africa. But that's kind of what they were known for, were making these sort of almost men's adventure pictures set in exotic locales with a couple of American stars and, you know, British cast, British crew. Now that you say that, 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 that real quick, that, that kind of reminded me of, you know, you, you mentioned it briefly about Casablanca being that way. Uh, and, and it's interesting because it's like, you know, it's, it's from the perspective of, of an American, mm -hmm. Rick, uh, but who's in this uh, exotic land of uh, Casablanca. And then the only other place we see him is in Paris. So it's like, you know, it's like we, we get this uh, stranger in a strange land uh perspective especially for like you know an american audience um and, and it's interesting to, that like that is sort of the, the the key that sort of you know draws out the 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 sort of broccoli saltzman uh you know interests you know well not saltzman yet yeah i mean he comes in okay. picture later but uh, irving allen uh, funnily enough later on uh broccoli and allen were still sharing a partner's desk sitting literally across from each other <laughs> in their offices in England in the early 1960s. After they've split up the partnership, and now Cubby's making, Cubby Broccoli's making James Bond films, and Irving Allen's producing a little movies here and there, but he sees all the money that Cubby's making with the Bond films, and he's like, I want some of this. So he starts his own series, the Matt Helm movies with Dean Martin. Oh, crazy. So, yeah, so these movies are all wow. kind of tied together in a way. But the, the, the other reason for watching a Warwick film is because most of the crew that would go on to work on the Bond films, you know, production designer Sid Kane and Ken Adam, DP Ted Moore, and uh, stuntman Bob Simmons, who was Connery's stunt double, is from the Warwick films. He's also the first screen James Bond because he's the guy in the gun barrel. And Doctor No from Russia about the Goldfinger. Okay. Uh, if you if you look at the Blu-rays of that on a big screen, you can really tell it's not Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And uh, the director uh, Terrence Young, who did uh, Doctor No, he made the first film that Warwick did called uh, The Red Beret or Paratrooper with Alan Ladd. Mm. Uh, and continuing that on forward, one of the last films he made. Was called Tank Force. I think it was 1958. It's near the end of their, their run. And uh, that film had an alternate title, No Time to Die. Oh, uh, there you go. Hey. Yep. So it all ties together. Yeah. <laughs> it's a conspiracy, man. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm glad we're um, connecting the dots here. This is great. <laughs> yeah. This will fit in with your JFK episode, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so everything ties together, man. <laughs> and actually, Broccoli, uh, later on he, when he was interviewed, said of Warwick Pictures, uh, he said, we're not making British pictures, but Ameri- American pictures in Britain. <laughs> Right. Uh, and, and then he went on to, to to kind of make it worse by saying, I make films to appeal to the lower common denominator. <laughs> That's why I'm still in business while the arty farty boys are not. <laughs> <laughs> but that was Cubby. Cubby always wanted to make films that entertained and, you know, sometimes let yeah. that get the better of him with some of those later Roger Moore films. But yeah. <laughs> But you can see, too, uh, even with the James Bond films, even though they're British films and made in Britain with British cast, they still have a very American essence to them and their their style and pacing and so on. That's true. And I I guess I, I would say that this one, though, uh, felt more British to me. I mean, like the, the sort of like, you know, very you know, stiff humor and... Um... Some of the stuff in the in the barracks, for instance, like it it felt almost like a, a heritage film, um, which you know the British would kind of go through in the sort of eighties and, and do these these films of like the the glorious yesteryear when the you know the British Empire was strong and you know we had uh, certain people uh, you know going through these uh, these all boys schools and and whatever else like that it was like this weird series of nostalgia films that they did in the 80s and and this had a little bit of that uh sensibility and i i think you know because this is a, like slightly a nostalgic film itself like you know sort of reverent nostalgia uh film that, that, that the british have you know to me it's 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 very much a film of its time because from about mm-hmm. the early 50s mid 50s on into the mid 60s movies in general to me seemed a lot slower paced than they were even before that and certainly after that, you know, where they really took their kind of leisurely time. And here you've got a 90-minute movie where a good 60 minutes of it is guys training, <laughs> you know. Going far. I'm terribly sorry. I, I don't speak English. Pity. Neither do I. What an interesting movie, this uh, Cockle Shell Heroes thing. I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, yeah, like uh, maybe a prototype for Guns the Navarone mm-hmm. or... Uh, Dirty Dozen, uh, obviously. Oh yeah, and you know, I I'd say in terms of uh, that, like this is sort of the the rough draft of what uh, something like Dirty Dozen became. Uh, you know, which kind of you know was able to refine some of that stuff and you know make the action a little more hard hitting and all that. But you know, it still um, managed to have uh, some interesting relations with the you know Jose Ferrer character, the Trevor Howard character. Uh, for the longest time, I was like, man, like wh- like. Trevor Howard it was bothering me. I couldn't place him, and it it was he's the uh, he's he's the sort of um, lieutenant or whatever it is in in uh, Third Man. It's like uh, <laughs> I'm English, not Irish. It's Callaway, <laughs> but uh... and he's one of the Kryptonians in Superman. Yeah, yeah, movie. yeah. But you know, yeah. one of the things that struck me, not having seen this movie in a long time and watching it in the Bond context, is how Jose Ferrer is kind of the Bond figure in this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the young guy who just wants to go out and, and get this mission done his way and not really right. play by the rules of authority. Exactly. He has no use for the, the bureaucracy. By and the Yeah, exactly. The by the book. Yeah, exactly. Trevor Howard's by the book. He's basically M. The scene that really stood out for me in this film, again, not having seen it for a while, is when Trevor Howard goes to get the guy who's gone AWOL. 
and you think he's really going to right. come down on him like right, a hammer. Right, but right. when he finds out that the guy's wife has left him, <laughs> then it's like, well, why don't I take you back around there so you can give the guy she jilted before a good beatdown? <laughs> take your time. Yeah. <laughs> Go on in. <laughs> that was a great scene. Yeah. Have you got your key? Yes, sir. And what are you waiting for? Oh, and give my regards to Morris. And interestingly enough, in the late 50s, when Ian Fleming and some of his partners were thinking of uh, making their own Bond movie before Broccoli and Saltzman came along, one of the guys he thought would have made a good Bond is Trevor Howard. Oh, interesting. It's it's funny that, that he would think that. I mean, because, you know, even in the, the books, like the Fleming Bond isn't supposed to be a sort of like um, maybe r- refined and aristocratic and you know, sort of bougie as as Trevor Howard comes across, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's an interesting casting choice, uh, you know, by uh, Fleming or, or, or casting uh, shortlist or whatever it would be, <laughs> like the, the sort of dream casting. I'm afraid I'm not qualified to comment on the technical possibilities of your plan. Not having seen Cockleshell Heroes in a while, um, I didn't think it was that great a film, to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, It's great because of all those sort of Bond connections that come into it. Uh, again, between the, the cast and the crew. Interestingly, you know, we have uh, Christopher Lee showing up as the uh, boat captain near the end. Right, or the, or the submarine captain or whatever. Submarine yeah. captain. But, you know, Christopher Lee was a cousin of Ian Fleming's. And, oh, and crazy. He, I know that. And he was a spy in World War II. <laughs> and when they were making Dr. No, Ian Fleming suggested they should hire Christopher Lee to play Dr. No. <laughs> Oh, crazy. I don't know why they didn't, because he would have been a good choice, you know. Wow, that is very interesting. Yeah, I remember one of his interviews, Christopher Lee said, people are always saying, you know, uh, when, about his World War II service. Well, were you involved with this? Were you involved with that? And did you do this, do that? And he says, I always say to them, can you keep a secret? And they goes, yeah, yeah, sure. And he says, so can I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, so good. Yeah. So how did how did this movie come about, and how did Jose Ferrar end up directing it? Do, do you know much about that? Because I didn't know him, him as a director. I've only known him, like we were saying before, as the Padishah Emperor from Dune, you know? <laughs> and or or kept... Lawrence of Arabia. Or... Jose Ferrar was a pretty big deal in the 1950s, I think mostly from Broadway, and he was a you know producer, director, actor on Broadway, uh, where I think... Mm. Maybe Cyrano was one of his big hits on Broadway. He did. He starred in the film version of Cyrano de Bergerac and directed it. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think got some Academy Award nominations. I'd have to check that to be sure. But yeah, he was pretty highly regarded in that period. So well, uh, I can see that. why they they might want to to get him to be in the film. The film does feel a bit uneven, though. I, I kind of see what you're saying. Um, there are some incredibly great moments, and then there's a lot of lulls. You know, especially in a shorter film like you were saying like 90 minute film and, and a lot of things that just sort of seem padded out like the whole yeah. uh right you know uh you know the uh, limpid mind scene where they're training in the pool to how to do the limpid mines and then it's like by the way that's a live mine and you got five <laughs> minutes to dispose of it so the whole troop goes running out and and they're encountering the marching band they encounter the schoolgirls, <laughs> not nuns but schoolgirls. <laughs> And when I see that, all I can think is, you know, Adam West and Batman. But some days yeah, you just can't get a bomb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sergeant, just a little token of our respect and admiration. You've got just 12 minutes to get rid of that thing, Coney. 
but but what's funny is like you know as you're describing that scene it's like what what is it about it that like you know a lot of it is that maybe the the, the movie's kind of light on story so that you know you have these like padded moments that just like make it drag and, and feel really long i mean it was the shortest of the three movies we watched but it uh, by far felt like the longest um and even in that sequence you're describing it's like it <laughs> it it felt so long like I, in, and part of it was like some of the the humor that it was going for it wasn't quite landing <laughs> and then it was just like you know i don't know building in the the like the pause for the for the laughter but no one's laughing so it just feels really you know <laughs> stiff and uh and and not uh not well paced so we need to add a maybe a laugh track uh, to this movie and then <laughs> yeah. might, might nail some of these jokes. Maybe some yakety sacks would have helped that moment. <laughs> that that would make that scene much better, yakety sacks. <laughs> but but you know the whole movie it's like from scene to scene the tone keeps shifting. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me is uh, when they're in the submarine and they're being bombed by the Nazis and the guy hits his head. And after the things settle down, the guy goes over and fills his pulse like, well, he's not going to be of any use to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay, just miss him. No, no, you know, crying over his body. It's like, you know. So. Yeah, well, it's, they spent a long, long time over this and that, but then, like, one of the guys dies, and they're like, yeah, well, screw it. All right, uh, anybody else want to hop on this boat? Yeah, and, um, and it's the kind of just dismissiveness and, and uh, disregard for life that you get in the Bond films, you know. Right, where right. yeah. Characters yeah. get killed, it's like, oh, well, you know, move on. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they just kind of did the thing where they pick up his arm, it dropped, and then they're like, all right, he's gone, moving on. <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of that guy's scene. <laughs> either he's dead or he's no use to us, uh, he's disabled in some way. Who, yeah. You know, either way. Um, Checks all the boxes. Oh, yeah. but man, real quick, on the, on the submarine thing, how much did that uh, remind you of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Like, there's that that map that's being drawn yeah. with the the sort of red line, the, the dotted red line, and then you know the the Christopher Lee uh, uh, ship captain on the submarine itself. Like he he kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Katanga. And then you know we see <laughs> the, the the submarine, which uh, again is is uh, also out of out of Raiders too. It's just, there's something about that like. Where you could definitely feel the influence. I mean, it seems like George Lucas watched this one at some point. Sure, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I do love those scenes though of the uh, the depth charges coming down for the boat. I mean, I, you know, like Das Boat or Das Boot is a great movie. Um, if you want to watch mm-hmm. a submarine film, and th- that's some of the scariest stuff in that movie. And I thought that they really succeeded in this one too. Shut off a depth charge attack. Coming in fast, sir. Silent routine. Silent routine. Fire! So, uh, Bruce, you're talking about how uh, in in cockle shells we have this like ever shifting tone, right? These like different sands that we're trying to walk on here, and it's uh, we can't get our footing. I mean, I, I would say that North by Northwest does that a lot, but does it successfully? I mean, that's <laughs> right. the, that's the, the, the difference between uh, Jose Ferrer directing and Alfred Hitchcock directing. Yeah, absolutely, because Hitchcock's a master at that, you know. And and um, there's still overall a light tone to the film. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, yeah. But but the, I call it a comedy. Yeah, but the emotional scenes uh, between um, Cary Grant and uh, Eva Marie Saint really do, you know, have some feeling to them, some real emotion yeah. to them. But, but, but that, that's a good point, though, in terms of like uh, maybe this one 
wasn't asking as much of the extremes uh north by mm-hmm. northwest that is like you know there, there was no moment where uh <laughs> that our our main heroes were being lined up against the wall and uh tried to like go down with some dignity i mean it's like you know so maybe the, maybe the extremes aren't aren't as much on this one so like maybe it is a little easier but but you're, i mean but still he he does somehow thread uh sort of the thrills the humor and uh you know maybe some of the romance and then some of the like the actual like you know feeling uh that you know, the audience has for some of these characters but now the, the interesting thing about this one is Cary Grant right and there's a cubby broccoli connection there because Cubby Broccoli, when his, uh, uh, his second wife had died, his, his, his uh, second wife's name was Nedrush, when she was dying of cancer back in New York, Broccoli in the late 50s wanted to do the Ian Fleming Bond books. And he went to New York to kind of look after his wife, and his partner, Irving Allen, was going to have lunch with Ian Fleming and Fleming's agent and sealed a deal. Unfortunately, when that lunch happened, Irving sits down and says, uh, Irving Allen, uh, says uh, that he's kind of looked at the books and frankly, in his opinion, are not even good enough for television. So that kind of killed the deal. And that was the beginning of the end of the association of Irving Allen and Cubby Broccoli. Uh, so after Nedra passes away, 1960, Cubby remarried. Creative differences, as they say. Exactly, yeah. So 1960, Cubby remarries. He marries a woman named Dana Wilson, who um, had divorced from an actor named Lewis Wilson. And they had a son named Michael, Michael G. Wilson, who's currently the producer of the Bond films, along with his stepsister, Barbara. Uh, Interestingly, Michael's dad, Lewis Wilson, was the first screen Batman in the serial of 1943. Oh, right on. So the Bond movies are produced by Batman's son, you know. Um, (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. But when Cubby got married to Dana Wilson, his best man was his friend, Cary Grant. Oh, crazy. And supposedly, Cubby asked Cary Grant to play James Bond when they were starting the Bond series, uh, to which Grant said uh, no for two reasons, one being that he didn't want to commit to a series of films, because uh, I think he was already at that point thinking about retiring. Hmm. Uh, but the other is that he said, uh, my fee would be your your entire budget for Dr. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... So it didn't work out, but I'm I'm trying to think of like where Cary Grant was at that time career wise. I mean, was this around like Charade uh, era Cary Grant? Before, just before that, Charade was sixty two, sixty three, I think. So this was nineteen sixty. Uh-huh. So oh, around okay. Operation Petticoat era, you know. Okay. But I mean, again, in North by Northwest, it's what fifty nine. He's fifty five years old in that film, you know. So he's he's getting yeah. up there. Uh, I always felt when I watched Notorious, if you'd gotten Grant at that time playing James Bond, that would have been perfect. But <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. Mm. But, um, wow, he was he was in his fifties in this one, huh? Yeah, he he, he looked fantastic. Um... The woman that plays his mother was only eight years older than he was. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little uh, a little. Um, oh God, what's it called? A Manchurian Candidate with uh... Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury, thank you. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Um, I thought that uh, he was hilarious in this, um, as well as the direction and the visual gags in it. The, the the one that stuck out to me the most was the tiny razor, and yeah. uh, he had to shave his <laughs> shave his face with that tiny razor. And they're like, "What the hell took you so long?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah big face, small razor." 
Oh there, man, there's so many good ones like that. Yeah, that's there, a good. That's a, there's really funny lines in this. There, there's a moment I love too, where he's been climbing around outside the hotel building in Chicago and goes in through the. It's a hospital, I think. Goes in through <laughs> right. the window, and the woman in the bed is like, "Stop!" Puts on her glasses, sees Carrie Grant, "Stop!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "Uh." Yeah. <laughs> I, I think in terms of like Bond prototype, um, <laughs> that there is that that interesting moment where the very first confusion uh, they have uh, with, with him, like the, the wrong man moment. You know, Kaplan got paged, and then you know he goes and like grabs the uh, the, the the telegram guy, and as he's like going to send the telegram, uh, that guy like grabs his shoulder. And he like looks down for a second. He's like, you know, hey, wait a minute, what's that supposed to be? <laughs> right? It's like just like too uh, cool for school. Uh, you know, almost James Bondian uh, level of uh, sort of you know remove an irony from from a, from a dangerous situation. You know. Yeah, and it's very Bondish in a way that he's he's kind of unflappable. You know, when he's yeah, like, yeah. taken in to meet Van Damme, who's who's. Uh, yeah. James Mason, who's you know in full on Bond villain mode in this, I think. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, but but uh, you know, again, just like Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, he's not taking any guff off this guy. He's just throwing it back at him, you know, <laughs> as fast as they throw it at him. But it's a little Bondish too, in that it's instead of just taking um, Roger Thornhill out behind the building and shooting him, it's like, well, we'll uh, fill him full of alcohol and put him in a car and see if he'll run it off a cliff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. that was coming insane. up with elaborate plans to try. Yeah. And then later, I mean, I can see how you could explain, you know, a guy got drunk, stole a car and ran it off a cliff. That's explainable. Uh How do you explain he turns up in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere, machine gun from up above? Yeah, that one might take a little more explaining. In the the dustiest Indiana uh, ever. (laughs) Yeah, but it's got a a bit of that Bond quality, too, in that, you know, it's going through several different cities here because we're starting in New York and Long Island and Chicago and then out to Rapid City, South Dakota. That kind of increases the pace because you're kind of jumping one location Mm -hmm. to the next, to the next, to the next, you know. Um, And I thought the famous scene um, that, you know, I'd been waiting to see for so long of the the crop dusting... um, airplane i thought that that was like a special effects almost extravaganza for the time you know like what they were shooting and like the the angles that they were using and the sets that they created you know where he was inside the uh the corn right mm-hmm. right well it, and especially the, the truck like him sort of getting all you know basically run over by it and then right having it explode like that as he's running away from it like that. <laughs> <laughs> insane what, what, was that the first guy to like uh, run away from an explosion in slow motion or whatever? <laughs> the walk away explosion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I like the big Lebowski pencil rubbing. Clearly, there was uh, some of that from there. Yeah. Although the yeah, although the, whatever got rubbed out on the pencil was a little bit different than what we saw. Yeah, in, just uh, a little bit. Lebowski. Yeah, but also like that that um, that house on the top of Mount Rushmore or whatever. That's very. A crazy mid-century house, you know, kind of Jackie Treehorn-esque, like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of like some of the Bond stuff, yeah, he also like, you know, just uh, like you were saying, Bruce, a minute ago, like he just like, he was constantly having women thrown at him uh, the whole time. Uh, and, you know, sort of, you know, bat them off uh, with a, a, a Casablanca fly swatter. I think one thing, though, that like still separates his character from sort of the, the way all of the movie Bonds were that like, he did get sort of emotionally involved with uh, 
at least one of his um, you know female spies or whatever uh, his love interest here uh, unlike you know Bond in the the movies who you know basically never has that uh, has that uh, no one has that effect on him as I'm trying to say like you know it, it does in the in the books which is maybe why <laughs> you know the broccoli connection to Cary Grant may have seemed um, uh, more apropos but in you know the the movie Bond. He's uh, he's a lot more cavalier with uh, with his relationships. I think once you get to the last couple of Pierce Brosnan movies, to me, Brosnan became the emotionally needy Bond. <laughs> <laughs> World is not enough and die another day. I mean, you know, he's rescuing Jinx and die another day when she's drowning and like breathe, breathe. You know? <laughs> it's like he he just right. met this woman like a week ago. I see. So, you know. And you get some of that with uh, Daniel Craig's Bond as well. But uh, yeah, no, exactly. But yeah, certainly, you know, with, with you know Roger Moore, it's like let me just swing around, and let the woman take the bullet for me. Yeah, but that, that's twenty first century Bond. That's that's different. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this one too, we have another sort of M type character in the Professor. You know, played by Leo G. Carroll. Oh right. And yeah. it was just five years after this, he was going to be the boss in The Man from Uncle, uh-huh. which was a TV show that was developed with the aid of Ian Fleming. And we do have Cary Grant, too, as, as the uh, the guy who you know likes his smokes, likes his drinks, although he doesn't smoke that much in the film. But, you know, we do see him ordering that, that Gibson, Yeah. which, out of curiosity, I did have to, to look that up. The, the Gibson is not really a martini. Uh-huh. Uh, it's uh, one part dry vermouth, six parts gin, served with a pickled onion. If it were served with a green olive instead of a pickled onion, then it would be a martini. <laughs> so. Well, I, the, the, I mean, if you want to get into it, like the, the, the... <laughs> so, Jer- so to give you a little background of Jeremy, real quick, Bruce. Uh, Jeremy also has a YouTube channel called Distinguished Spirits. And, oh yeah, uh, okay. He, he he creates videos and and tells the stories behind uh, certain drinks. Um, so. I'm gonna let him go ahead. Yeah, and, please and correct school me. Us yeah. a little bit. No, it, it, I guess uh, the the way Bond is to you, uh, some of these drinks are to me. It's weird that like the, the Gibson was developed, you know, roughly maybe you know ten ish years after the Martini, the, the dry Martini that you're familiar with. You know, we don't really know why it was uh, named the Gibson. You know, there's a couple of different theories about you know who it could have been named after. But essentially, the distinguishing characteristic was that there was no uh, orange bitters in it because. Originally, the dry martini was uh, gin, dry vermouth, and orange bitters, and either a lemon twist or an olive. The Gibson was just gin and, and dry vermouth, no bitters, and you know no garnish at first. And then eventually, sort of after Prohibition, the way to sort of distinguish it from a martini was the, the pickled onion. Are orange bitters no longer an ingredient that's used? Well, after Prohibition... Uh, Orange bitters were pretty much not available oh. uh, up until maybe about 2006 or seven uh, when they started, you know, slowly producing them again. Now you can get them anywhere, uh, and mm. you can, mm-hmm. you know, make the uh, sort of proper martini, which our good friend James Bond helped, uh, you know, destroy in the minds of everyone. Uh, which is that, like, oh, a martini is shaken and it's not stirred, and uh, it's made with vodka, and you know, there's just a wisp of vermouth in it or whatever, like. A lot of that actually came out of like the movie Bond and, you know, how everyone uh, sort of perceived all that. That and like, you know, the way Prohibition, you know, had kind of a brain drain of like, you know, a generation of bartenders either having to leave the country to keep working uh, or whatever. And like 
Um, right. A confluence of those things. And then the, the, the sort of heavy marketing of vodka at the time in the in the sort of mid-60s. So it got lost and evolved. Exactly. It got, got lost uh, in, right. in the fray. Uh, wow. But anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> More than you ever wanted to know about. I, I'm very thirsty right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> I will say, I, I've, um, you know, a lot of my friends are James Bond fanatics like me. And mm-hmm. when we were younger and would go into clubs and bars and so on, there was one of my friends who would who would often go to the bartender and say, you know, martini shaken, not stirred. Mm-hmm. And it just brought home to me how you cannot order that without just looking like a jerk. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or, or, you know, it just, just doesn't quite work. You know, I always felt that the best way to order a, a martini for me was uh, Walter Matthau in A Face in the Crowd, where he's in the uh-huh. bar and he says, uh, martini, Joe. Make it a strong one. Just let the vermouth blow a kiss at the gin. (laughs) I like that. That's how you order a martini. (laughs) Cocktail before dinner? Yes, please. A Gibson. Right away. Getting back to North by Northwest, did either of you guys have enough drinks to notice uh, (laughs) in the scene where Eve Kendall shoots Roger Thornhill in the restaurant at Mount Rushmore? Did Uh you notice the kid in the background? No. No. Well, if next time you watch the movie, watch the kid just kind of in between the two of them in the background, because oh. obviously this is not the first take they're using. Because <laughs> when she pulls out that gun before she fires, you see that kid plug his fingers in his ears. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, yeah, I gotta the, watch that. The one kid again. was just a, an astute observer of, of her face and, and the way that he, you know, knew he, he, could, he could tell. He yeah, knew exactly. What was coming, yeah. <laughs> So. She was gonna, she's gonna fuck him up. That's really funny. There, there, there's also a couple of superheroes in the movie in the auction scene, because uh-huh. uh, the auctioneer is Les Tremaine, who was mentor in the Shazam series, Saturday morning series in the seventies. <laughs> and the and please, his, sir, yeah. the gentleman yeah. can't do that. <laughs> Great radio voice, yeah. yeah. Would the gentleman please cooperate? And the guy who plays his assistant there is an actor named uh, Olin Soule. He played the. Uh, choir director on the Andy Griffith show but he was also the voice of Batman in the Super Friends so yes it all comes together I'm telling you it's all connected (laughs) Robin Aquaman Superman to the Batmobile there's one other thing in in uh, North by Northwest when uh, uh, Valerian it's like you know the villain with two henchmen which is a kind of Bond trope right so you've got Mm. uh, Leonard uh, is the one uh. villain and then you've got the other guy Valerian the knife thrower Mm-hmm. And and in the scene where Valerian at the UN throws the knife in the guy's back, before he does it, he puts on the black gloves, mm-hmm. know, which is very much like uh, you know Robert Shaw in From Russia with Love, where before he kills anyone, he puts on the black gloves. You know, um, Richard Williams, I think the actor's name was, and the Martin Landau character. When you get to the end of the movie, it's pretty obvious that he's a homosexual, and that Van Damme is probably bisexual and may have had something going on with Leonard. You know, you're jealous when he's talking about uh-huh. Kendall, you know. Oh, right, right, right. Um, ah. So, you know, I mean, Leonard's... Leonard. Yeah, Leonard's like, you know, how, how did he know about the blanks in the gun? Call it my woman's intuition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but it is one of the great endings in movies, too, to go from hanging on Mount Rushmore to being pulled up into a train right before it enters the tunnel and that really phallic scene i have that note here this that final cut of pulling her from the from the monument up into the bed i thought that was incredible well if we ever get out of this alive 
Let's go back to New York on the train together. All right. Is that a proposition? It's a proposal, sweetie. Did they actually make it? Is the real question. Oh, right. That's a that's a great question. You mean you mean is that left up to interpretation? Kind of, because they they did say something about um, how they, you know, were dreaming about making out making it out of there. I, I can't remember what the line was exactly, but then yeah, you know, and then we see in this very dreamlike cut. Uh, come on up here, uh, Mrs. Thornhill, or whatever. It's the end of Dreamscape when they're in the, when yeah. they're in the train. You know? <laughs> well, that, that was definitely a, a, a direct See, allusion I, for right. this thing. But yeah, I, until you've said that, I've never thought of it in that way. But I, you know, I think uh, Hitchcock was a little more of a literalist and would have thought, yeah, they ah. made it, they got out of there. You know. Yeah, I see. Yeah, but but I mean, you know, I I, I don't know Hitchcock uh, and and some of his movies, the, even the ending of Rear Window, which is a little similar. Or, uh, you know, the way that Vertigo progresses, uh, where it just, it feels like there's there's something not literal happening, you know? Well, Vertigo clearly is a very psychological film, you know? Yeah. So, so that was just kind of its own its own thing. But yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd always interpreted it as, no, they got off the mountain, you know? But but, but this, um, this one is almost like kind of a uh, Kafka-esque uh you know, a persecution story where it's like, you know, everyone's after him and, you know, he doesn't know why and and where it's coming from. And, you know, like this gross paranoia, Um, you know, there's a little bit of like psychological stuff going on, but maybe you don't notice it as much because you're having so much fun versus Vertigo where it's not quite as fun. Yeah. I mean, I think the dialogue in this film is phenomenal, you know, and and then just Hitchcock's directing his camera placement, the movements, everything's wonderful. All the performances, and it's probably one of his best MacGuffins, you know, because it's all yeah. about that microfilm, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and what's we, on that microfilm? We have no idea what's on the yeah. microfilm. The microfilm are the letters of transit of this movie. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so. I like yeah. that, though. That's the mystery, right? That could have been, yeah. could be absolutely anything. And I think that that's what broadens the, the mystery of it. It makes me think of the end of The Rock. You know, yeah, exactly. Where, where, where you want to see who shot JFK? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. He, he he had that same footage on that that microfilm, <laughs> exactly. but it was before they shot JFK. Yeah. See, it's a conspiracy. It's all ties together. It's a conspiracy. Oh my god! <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah, you didn't see that one coming, did you? And 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 who co-stars in The Rock? Sean Connery. Sean Connery. There come you go. On, come on. It's. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say Ed Harris. I don't know. Oh, oh yeah. And he's co-starring with Nicolas Cage, whose real name is Nicholas Coppola, because he's the nephew of Francis Coppola, whose brother-in-law, who was married to his sister Talia Shower, produced Never Say Never Again. Holy shit! This is never. This, this is worse than six degrees of Kevin yeah. Bacon. Right now. The eighteen degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Bacon, who was in JFK. Oh my god! Whoa. <laughs> Oh man! I, I think I'm ready for a cocktail now. Boy. Yeah, I, I think we slid all the way off of Washington's nose at this point. <laughs> well, Bruce, do you have anything um, you'd like uh, you know the listeners to know about you or what you're working on? Um, I know you've got some great things that you're working on currently, but love to hear it. Uh, well, right now I'm uh, producing a, a sort of reboot of an, an older show. We're calling it the Miracle Show, which is. Um, sort of reality series uh looking at sort of uplifting feel-good stories uh, this will be on streaming outlets probably in the fall youtube and and uh amazon hulu those sort of things oh, cool. we need good news stories we do yeah and it's been it's, it's been a lot of fun putting these together 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I've been writing screenplays for years and trying to sell them and still, still doing that. Any, any current scripts, uh, that are, um, you know, showing some interest or, or gaining some interest or anything that you're, you're proud of that you want to. Uh, well, you know, as you, you may be aware, yeah, I just uh, recently finished a, a screenplay that's called The Last Stage or Wyatt Earp's Dying Dream, uh, huh. which is uh, set in the 1920s and uh, kind of follows the, begins following the last days of Wyatt Earp as he's dying of uremic poisoning in L.A. where he's working as a consultant on silent westerns. Um, but uh, as he's dying, I found out Wyatt Earp's final words were, suppose, suppose. So that gave me the idea of doing a film that really is, uh, you know, here's this guy who's this legendary Western lawman dying, laying down in a bed of old age. How would he like to have gone out? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then we go into his sort of dream of, uh, you know, uh, going out to his mining claims and, and getting involved with some roughnecks and having a shootout at the end and all that kind of thing. So but I love it. It's, it's I, called uh, Citizen Earp. <laughs> I tell people that it's it's a western if uh, Ingmar Bergman had directed a western you know, or, or David Lynch <laughs> maybe you know so yeah it's it's a sort of yeah fantasy western we 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 should get David Lynch attached to this one that'd be that'd be quite an interesting oh, uh, take on it. that script yeah from from your mouth to David Lynch's ears so. yeah <laughs> he's a listener so next week we have another very special guest uh, for another inspiring show. Um, we've been doing inspiring before. Um, this one is going to be inspiring one of my favorite films. Uh, we are going to be talking about inspirations for Kill Bill. Um, Kill Bill Volume 1, specifically. Yeah. Uh, we'll be looking at Lady Snowblood, The Bride Wore Black, and, of course, Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, and we're joined by a guest, Jeremy. Um, who are we joined by? Uh, a composer buddy of mine, um, uh, Omar Fidel. He and I had been talking to him a little bit about uh, doing uh, doing an episode, and uh, I had thrown out a couple ideas to him, and um, this one was something he was really excited about because he was like, "Oh, I haven't seen uh, Kill Bill in a while, so it'd be, be a lot of fun to revisit that." Uh, so yeah, he'll, he'll help us uh, unpack the origins of Kill Bill. That sounds excellent. Very excited for that. Uh, no. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe and follow us on all the podcasts and social platforms at the Grindhouse Institute. And if you really want to give us a boost, check us out on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It helps us to get noticed. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll be back next week. Ciao. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Ah, no. He's looking at you, kid.